Just keep going. Just keep going, guys. Just keep clapping. Just keep clapping. All right. Hold your applause. Okay. Um, so, review. We have talked about last night. What did we talk about last night? Who can remember? 24 hours ago. How good is your memory, really? Anybody? Just yell it out. What did we talk about last night? Count the cost, yep, competing on the field, getting on the field of play. It's God's team, so who gets the glory? God gets the glory. Hey, SC won today, you know? Right. Yeah. Notice I didn't say Lincoln Riley won today, you know? I didn't say Caleb Williams won today. I said SC won today. That's right. You've got to count the cost. You've got to commit. That's exactly what we just heard, count the cost committing. Um, earlier today we talked about, so you've made that decision. You get on the field of play. Um, one of the things God wants you to do in a really unique season you guys are in, you can establish yourself really, really quickly. On a college campus, you can establish yourself really fast. The people that establish themselves make the biggest impact. And God wants you to fit in. God wants you to not engage in sin, but do the things the people around you are doing so that you can connect with them and make a meaningful impact. So today, tonight, what we're going to do is um, the theme, this is the theme. We can put it up on the screen. If you want to make an impact... You have to take God's instruction seriously. This is the theme for this talk. If you want to make an impact, you have to take God's instruction seriously. And you prove that you take something seriously or someone seriously by doing what they say to do. So um, one of my classes in school, it was, a, it was a marketing class. And in this class, what the professor did the very first day is he said there were 30 of us in the class. And he um, had us take a test. It was kind of like a personality skills assessment test. Also, like what we wanted to do in our um, career as we look to the future. So we take this test. And then in the second class, what he did is he broke the 30 of us up into six teams. So six teams of five people. Each team was structured um, like a business would be, like a company. You had a CEO. You had an art director. You had a... Um, you had a copywriter, you had a researcher, and so kind of on down, you had the structures of a kind of like a small marketing advertising company. And what he said to us when he broke us up into these teams is he said, okay, based on the quality of your work, this is how the grading is going to go. It was a true curve. He said, if, you, if the team does a good job, so that was an if, if the team does a good job, one person on the team will get an A, and only one person on the team will get an A. The majority of the people on the team, if the team does a good job, will get B's and C's. A few people, if the team doesn't do a good job, will get D's and F's. So he lays this out. True curve. Like, honestly, how it should be. But it's not that way, I know. But he lays that out. And then he, he adds this. He says, hey, and just so you know, your classmates, the people on the team with you, the, uh, the four other students on this team of five, they turn in an evaluation of every team member and the evaluation is one of the considerations for the grade. So part of your grade is going to come from your classmates. So for this class, they were going to have a, um, a business executive from Chicago, one of the major food brands in America, come down. And we were each given, they had a big portfolio of brands that they managed. And we were given one of their, one of their brands. And so each team had a different brand. And we had to come up with a full marketing campaign. So we had to do the whole research. So we had to, we had to function like a company. It was a very, very, very fun class that we did. So we had to do this presentation to this executive at the end of the semester. And what he said to us was he said, OK, so not only does your evaluation of your teammates or your classmates determine what their grade is going to be, it's one of the factors, 
if people don't carry their load, you can fire people. And if you fire people, they will receive a new brand assignment and they have to do the entire project and present to the marketing executive from this company all by themselves. So we get into the project, I mean, we're taking it seriously. We're like, okay, like, you know, we're gonna take the instructions seriously, we're gonna do it. Well, we have a guy on our team that didn't take it seriously. So he's coasting, you know, we're taking, we're doing meetings, you know, we're like, we're spending money, we're going to like print shops and getting stuff printed and doing focus groups and like paying for Starbucks drinks for all these people to come to these focus troops, groups so we can do this market research and do all that stuff. You know, he would skip the meetings, we would assign stuff, agree, okay, he's got to turn in this, this is the deliverable, he doesn't deliver it. So with about a month to go, we went to the professor, and we're like, hey, we, we're not quite sure what to do, but we want to fire the guy. So we go to him, and the professor, he had more grace than we did, because we just wanted to, you know, ax him, cut him off. And uh, he was like, he's like, okay, you got to give him an ultimatum. you got to go to him, and you got to say, okay, you haven't done these things. If you don't do these things by this date, we will fire you from the team. There's less than a month to go in the semester. You'll receive a new brand. You have to do the entire project. He was a senior. He was getting ready to graduate. If he fails the class, he doesn't graduate. So his graduation's on the line. Um, so we sit down with him. We have a conversation with him. And thankfully, he gets his act together. And we didn't have to fire him. Because I would feel guilty about, like, you know, he didn't graduate. I mean, it's ultimately his fault. But anyways, <laughs> I would have felt some guilt. You prove you take someone's instructions seriously by doing what they say. He really did not take the professor seriously. I mean, this professor stood up there and explained to us, hey, guys, here's what's going to happen. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. Not everybody got A's. Only a fraction of the class got A's. The majority of people got B's and C's. Some people failed. Some of the groups just did terrible, and the whole group got bad grades. I mean, it happened exactly the way the professor said it was going to happen. He got up there. He said it. You prove you take someone seriously by taking what they say and putting it into practice. Same thing for us as we follow God. We prove we take God seriously by taking the things that he says in his word, the Bible, and putting them in to practice. That's how we prove that we take him seriously. So Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. Let me read it again, and then we're going to zoom in on one of the verses. This is what it says. This is the letter from God. The Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those people whom he allowed Nebuchadnezzar to take away as prisoners from Jerusalem to Babylonia, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what you grow in them, marry and have children, then let your children get married so that they also may have children. You must increase in numbers and not decrease. Work for the good of the cities where I have made you go as prisoners. Pray to me on their behalf because if they are prosperous, you will be prosperous too. So we prove that we take God's instruction seriously by putting it into practice. This is the second thing. It's going to be up on the screen. God's plan will often seem crazy to you. There are a lot of times where God will, to use the sports analogy, call a play. And when you hear him call the play, you'll think, there is no way. That's crazy. That's crazy. So we've got a little compilation of uh, crazy plays. The two, I don't know how the, two, the first two got on there, but if we can play this video, let's play that clip of some, uh, some trick plays. Big play here. Trojans trying to pin him. Navarre's pass is away, and it's incomplete. Thrown behind. But it's intercepted. Bounced off his foot. Went off his foot, and it's picked off by Tatupu, and Tatupu is inside the five-yard line. Blitz by Polamalu. He missed his man, and it is picked off. Antoine Simmons, touchdown, USC. Second down. Ball back. Here's Williams. 
Williams throwing it. Mike Williams throws to Leonard. Touchdown. He's been begging that play all season long, and he finally gets it in the Rose Bowl. Not much pressure. Kicks it as Ajayne Harris watches it go. Go. Off to the left side, and it's picked up by USC and run down the sideline. And it looks like Michael Pittman is going to score for USC. Oh, I didn't wow. see what happened. Negretti to punt. He will not punt. He will fake it and get the first down to the 40, to the 30. They don't even know he's coming at him still. All the way down to the 21-yard line. Kyle Negretti. I don't know if it was by design or he called his own play. 34 yards to the Washington 21. John Baxter is God. How do you do? First play. Looks like a double pass for the Trojans. Juju Smith-Schuster is open and catches it at the 40. He's at the 30. They're chasing him at the 20. 10, 5, touchdown USC. Gives him a first down at the 35-yard line. Double pass coming up. Back across the field. Got it. Worked on it in practice. Touchdown. And diving on in to the end zone, Desmond Reed. And a lead. Backwards pass to Tyler Vaughns. Taking a shot to the end zone, and it's caught! Michael Pittman and USC with the trick play takes the lead. Jeremy, on that one, that punter, was that you running in there? <laughs> That's a big boy. That's big. My favorite was the, uh, I think it was against UCLA. It was the punt, and the announcer said he didn't know what it was, but I know exactly what it was. They punted, the guy catches it on the sideline. What they had the special teams do is all the special teams players just ran to the opposite side of the field. So all the UCLA guys, which probably feels even sweeter because it's UCLA, all the UCLA guys just follow suit. And they run the wrong direction. So the punt goes to the right, everybody runs to the left. The, the kick returner back there, you know, when they call the play, I often wonder, like, with these trick plays, like, what do people think? Are they, like, jacked up, like, yeah, let's do it? Are they, like... No, there's no way. Like, we're not going to do this. Like, have you seen Matt Leinert run and we're going to throw him a touchdown pass? Like, we cannot do this play, you know? Like, you always wonder what they're saying. And what is that kick returner saying? Like, if you've ever caught a punt and had a bunch of, like, 250 and 300-pound grown men running at you at full speed, I mean, it's like, I haven't done it, but it sounds horrifying. <laughs> so you think about him and his, his coach, like, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to block for you. Everybody's going to run the wrong direction, okay? <laughs> You're going to catch it, you know? And he's, you know, you just wonder, like, are they, like, jacked up? Or are they, like, there's no way we're going to run this play? There are times when God, you take him his instructions seriously, you're going to do what he says. There are times where God will call plays. Actually, fairly regularly, God will call a play, and you'll be like, oh, ah, ah, please, like, anything else? Could we do something else other than that? So, in our passage, we're turning to a verse where God calls a play to the exiles, and it's not the play they want to run. Let me read the verse. Verse 6. Marry and have children. Then let your children get married, so that they also may have children. You must increase in numbers and not decrease. Now, this is really, really fascinating. Because if you've, if you've read through the Bible, you know the story of the Bible... This is not the first time that God had told the people to do this. Actually, you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis. First, first chapter in Genesis is kind of an overview. Second chapter, he zooms in on some important things. 
Sin has not entered the world. It's the idyllic place. Everything is perfect. What God is doing with Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, is he's revealing his will for them. So he's revealing his will for what's important and how he wants them to live. This is what he says. Really fascinating. Genesis chapter 1. Before sin, God is revealing his will. It says this. says, God blessed them and said to them, them is Adam and Eve. He said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Right there at the very beginning, he's saying, God wants them, he's saying to them, I want you to have kids. He also references work. He also wants them to work. Work is actually not a curse. A lot of times people think it is a curse. It's actually not. It's part of God's will, and there's a ton of blessing when we go to work, but that's not what this talks about. He tells them he wants to have kids. Chapter 2, where he zooms in. He expands on this idea in chapter 2. Starting in verse 15, I've got some, a few excerpts from 15 through 24. You can read it on your own later. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to work it, and take care of it. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to, him, to the man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Sin has not entered the world. They haven't sinned yet. The snake hasn't tempted Eve. She hasn't bit into the fruit, whatever it was. None of that's happened. And from the very beginning, God is very clear, not one time, but multiple times. He, he orchestrates this first marriage. Who brought them together? God brought them together. God set up the first marriage. Marriage is God's idea. So God sets this up, brings them together, says they leave their father and mother. That's the long-term plan. They're going to leave their father and mother, and they're going to what? Have babies. He says this at the very beginning. So they know this. The, the, the exiles, they know this. I mean, they're God's chosen people. They're the Israelites, the ones who received the promised land, the ones who had the prophets, Moses and Abraham and all these people. They know this. But then they go into exile, and suddenly this play call that God had called from the very beginning, they knew this was God's will, suddenly they go into exile, and what happens? They're like, we're not going to run that play anymore. We don't, we don't know exactly why. I mean, I can imagine why. I mean, I, I, I've, I've got some reasons why I think they did. I mean, I think, you know, it boils down to, in their heart, they just kind of decided, you know, hey, we know that God said that, but in our special situation, that's a play we're not going to run. And, I mean, you can kind of imagine what they'd say. They'd probably say, like, the time's not right. I mean, when we were in Israel, you know, we're in the promised land, everything's idyllic, we've got our kingdom, we've got good government over us, we've got plenty of money, we're growing crops, we're stable, well, that's the perfect environment. But over here, exile, this dry desert place where there are these evil people and we're oppressed and we're just kind of huddling together and trying to weather the storm, this is not the right place to get married, God. So once we get this figured out, okay, well, maybe we'll take your other command seriously. Or maybe they're thinking, if God knew about all the trauma that we've been through, I mean, we were dragged from our motherland to this desert, barren, evil wasteland. If he knew the trauma that we'd experienced, there's no way he would call that play. But what does Jeremiah do? God goes to Jeremiah, and God tells Jeremiah, hey, I want you to write a letter, and in the letter, I want you to clarify, that's still the play. You guys knew it from the very beginning. That's still the play, guys. So now, I'm calling you out of the stands, on the field of play, and what you guys need to do is you need to get married and have babies and raise them to get married and have babies and increase in number. 
It's the exact same play. It's God's will from the very beginning. And I think this is really interesting because in our day, there's an increasing number of reasons that I'm encountering for why people shouldn't get married. I mean, increasingly, as I'm talking to my friends, and I've, I've encountered these. I'll tell you guys a little bit more of my story in just a minute, but some of the reasons why people say I'm not going to get married. One is the example of their parents. I mean, a lot of people, statistically, the majority of people actually, are growing up in broken homes. Their parents divorced. Dad cheated on mom. Mom cheated on dad. They cheated on each other. They're divorced. They're divorced multiple times. So they're raised with stepsisters and stepbrothers and just this, you know, family that's just all blended together. And a lot of people are saying, I just don't want to experience that. I don't want to go through that. I saw what my parents went through, and it was just kind of a train wreck, and I don't want to go through that. So I'm, I'm not going to get married. I might get in a relationship with somebody, but I'm not going to get married. Another reason that I hear, pretty common, especially a lot of guys say this. I don't hear a lot of girls say this, but I hear a lot of guys say this. They say, why should I get married when I can just live with her and have sex? I mean, why go through the commitment? Because marriage, uh, a marriage, it's a legal contract. Like, my wife and I went to the courthouse. There's a legal document. The county of Orange County is saying, like, yes, this is a legal thing. In order for them to break this, there are going to be financial consequences. So a lot of people are like, why go through all the legal stuff? You know, why just leave, live together? We, we're married in spirit, you know? We don't need to legally get married, you know? A lot of guys use that one. It's pretty shallow. Another one, um, a lot of people say, you know, okay, when it comes to marriage, I need to get established in my career. I need to be making plenty of money. I need to have that figured out. Once I get that figured out, well, then I'll get married. And when it comes to kids, the big one is, well, we don't own a home yet. And because we don't own a home, we're not going to get married. We're not going to have any kids until we own a home. Well, in Southern California, that's really hard. <laughs> it takes a long time. You know, it's super expensive here. So a lot of people are like, well, when I own a home, when I got the picket fence and the two-bedroom house and the black shutters on the white paint, you know, then I'll, then I'll have kids. But until then, I'm going to put it off. That's another reason. The politically correct reason that I hear is more people is bad for the environment, so having kids is poor stewardship. I've heard, I've heard that one. I've had people tell me that. You know, it, it, like I said, it's politically correct, environmentally conscious is how it sounds. Um, it sounds morally courageous. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm withholding children for the good of Mother Earth. And it's like, what? You know? If you think that, I don't want to mock this. If you think that, I would actually encourage you to do the research because the research says the opposite of what the narrative is. Another one, kids are expensive. Yes. On paper, I cannot afford any of my kids. I can't on paper. I mean, I read these reports. You know, they'll put a report out, and it's like, this is how much money you need to have kids. And I'm like, well, I don't have that much money. But I got four of them, and they're doing great. I mean, it's like they have a good life. They're enjoying life, you know? So kids are expensive. A lot of people are like, well, I'm not going to have kids until I have a certain amount of money. I think this is the most honest one. If I get married or if I have kids, it's going to limit my free time and my hobbies. I actually think that's the most honest one. I think for a lot of people, it just boils down to just like, you know, let's just call it what it is. It's really just kind of selfishness. And it, it will cut into your free time, you know, and it will limit your hobbies. I mean, I know a lot of people, and, I, you know, I, like we talked about it. I like to surf. I worked in the surf industry. I had a boss, and the reason he put off having kids was because he couldn't go on surf trips if he had kids. It, you know, he, he was just straight up about it. He wanted to chase his hobbies. He wanted to chase his pleasure and the stuff that he wanted to do, so... He put it off, and he didn't do it. So let me clarify a few things in what I'm saying. First of all, it's not God's plan that everyone gets married and has kids. If you read the Bible, you know that that's the case. 
Kevin and Emily Richardson did their workshop. I know a handful of you guys went to it. I think a, I don't know how many went to it earlier. I was encouraged by the number that went to it this evening. But that's one of the things they talked about. It's not God's plan that everybody gets married and everybody has kids. Okay? So I'm not saying that. Another thing to clarify. There are people who, for medical reasons, can't get pregnant. I've got some friends. They're trying to have kids. They're married. They're trying to have kids. For whatever reason, they haven't been able to get pregnant. Another thing. I'm not saying that you should go back to campus and prioritize finding a spouse. It's not what I'm saying. So if you get up from here and say, like, hey, Elliot said I, we got to get engaged by March so we can get married in July. Like, <laughs> Elliot did not say that, okay? Elliot did not say that. But here's what I am saying. You need to not reject God's play call. So if you're going to get out of the stands and onto the field of play, You've got to be the kind of person that's willing to run the play, even if it's a play that right now just straight up sounds crazy to you, or even if it's a play that to you, your first reaction is, that's horrifying. That's the worst thing I could imagine. There's no way I'm running that play. If you want to get out of the stands and onto the field of play, you've got to be the kind of person that's willing to run the play. When I was in college, I... um, dated a girl, and um, the relationship, um, you know, I thought, I thought we were moving towards marriage, and so I was rather surprised when she broke up with me, just because I did not see that coming at all. I really thought, hey, this is our future, this is the direction that we're headed in, and um, she, you know, for whatever reason, there were some different things going on, she called it off, she broke up, and I, up until that point, I had always, sports were my god up until that point, so up until college, it was like, I really didn't have any interest in dating, relationships, anything like that. So I didn't pursue them. I just pursued athletics because that was my dream. Then I get to college, first dating relationship, goes for about a year, and she breaks up with me. I had never felt emotional pain like that before in my life. I'd never felt it. I mean, I'd had, you know, the disappointment of sports. I'd had, you know, you try out for things, you don't make it. But I'd never felt anything quite like that. And so my response to that, once I kind of got through and sorted through the emotions, subconsciously, without saying it out loud, what I decided was, I'm not going to do that again. So I didn't say it. I never said, announced, like, hey, like, I'm never going to date again. I'm not going to get married. But deep down in my heart, that's really what I decided. And it was really a pain avoidance thing. So fast forward a few years, and I'm, you know, I'm involved in church and trying to get some things going. And there were a few sin patterns in my life that I just could not get victory over. So I'm struggling with these sins, and you know, I, I know what the Bible says about these sins, and I'm trying to figure out, okay, like, God, like, help me out here. Like, I'm, I'm fighting, I'm trying to get victory over these things, but I can't get any traction. So I went to a, one of the leaders, this man who's really wise, and he had seen the pattern of my life for a while, and he knew my history, he knew about the relationship, he had seen me respond, and I hadn't, I hadn't dated anybody, hadn't shown interest in anybody, nothing since then. I mean, I just was like, you know, probably about, for about five years, like nothing. And um, I sat down with him, and uh, it was at a, uh, um, a Chinese restaurant in Huntington on Beach Boulevard. And I'm, I'm talking to him. I'm like, hey, what I really want to talk about is I talk, want to talk about these sin patterns that I've gotten myself into, and I can't get any traction. I can't get victory in these areas. And he listened to me out. And um, he was like, he said, well, Elliot, he's like, I think the issue is you've said no to God. And specifically, you said no to God when it comes to marriage. And because you've said no to God, Now you want him to step in and help you in some ways, and he's actually not going to help you until you say yes to him. And he said that. We're sitting there in this uh, Chinese restaurant, and I started laughing. I was like, what? That's crazy. You know, and I'm just sitting there laughing. 
And I, as I reflected on it, because I was like, it was, it was a weird response. It was like illogical to start laughing at a situation. He was super surgical. I mean, he, it was like he reached into my heart with a scalpel and just like touched the issue. Touched the fact that I had said no to God deep down in my heart. And my response was, it was actually like kind of a flight response. I just started laughing. Because it was like I was completely exposed and vulnerable that deep down in my heart I had said no to God in an important area. So the next day, I remember, went home the next day, and I was still struggling with it. And I was like, is he right? I don't know if he's right. Like, I don't really know. And I, I just, in my, in my house, I was alone in, in the apartment that day. And um, it was one of those memories that's so vivid. I remember, I remember the Ravens were playing football. It was a Sunday afternoon, you know. So it was like I muted the TV, and the Ravens are playing. And I muted the TV, and I was like, God, I think he's right. I think I said no. And I don't know what this looks like, but I know I have to say yes. And I don't know exactly how to open myself back up, but would you please help me open myself back up? Because if this is something that you want for me, I don't want to say no to you. And I asked him that. And what's interesting is it was actually like, it was four or five years after that that I met my wife, and we dated and got married. There were, between that prayer and between when I met her, there were other people that I dated. It wasn't that serious. You know, it was usually kind of like quick stuff. But there was, there was actually a process that I had to go through to kind of come out and break out of this, like, no to God. I'm never going to be in a relationship with because I'm never going to be in a relationship again because I don't want to get hurt. There was actually a process that I had to go through to get to a point where it was like I was willing to say, yes, I'm, I'm willing to take the risk. I'm willing to open myself up and risk that pain again if this is what God wants for me. So again, if you want to be the person that gets out of the dance and out of the field to play, I'm not, I don't know what's in your future. I don't know if marriage is in your future. That was one of the really good things they talked about in their talk, the Richardsons. I don't know if marriage is in your future, but don't say no to it. And increasingly, I'm seeing an increasing number of people who are just flat out saying, no. No, I won't do it. Well, if it's what God wants for you, just like the exiles, you have to be willing to say Yes. Again, I'm not saying you should go back and do the ring by spring. That's not what I'm saying. Maybe some of you should, actually. Maybe some of you, you've been dating for a long time, and you need to, you know, you need to get married. I don't know. But the ring by spring thing, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if God calls a play, even if it sounds crazy to you, even if it sounds crazy, it's not always going to sound crazy, but even if it sounds crazy, don't close your heart to his play calling. So a few more quick notes on this. One, I recommend praying about this. My change of heart started with a prayer. My college pastor, Max Barnett, he would tell a story, and uh, in the story, he would reference Proverbs 18.22, a verse that he had read, and the verse says this. It says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing, and you could reverse that and say, she who finds a husband finds a good thing, so Max started praying for that. He just started praying, so I would encourage you to just start praying for this. Say, hey, God, like if, if this is something that you have for me, would you help me to be open to it? Would you start working on my character and preparing me for it? Would you be at work in the other person's life? Start praying, praying that this would be experienced by you. God says, hey, it's a good thing. Don't close your, your heart off to it. Another thing is, I recognize in saying this, some of you are sitting there, and you're like, yes. Yes, you know, like you might even be burning holes in the person in the room who you want to be in a relationship with. You're just like, <laughs> did you hear him? You know, like there might be some of you that are out there doing that. Some of you are offended. Some of you are like, there's no way. There's no way. Like he's dead wrong. There's no way. 
Some of you are confused. Some of you are like, wait, what? Did he say that? And what about this? And does it mean that? And what about this? So wherever you're at, I just encourage you to talk to your leaders, okay? (laughs) Talk to your leaders, okay? Okay, let's shift gears. Um, A few other play calls that God will call. These are other play calls that God will call. We talk about these a lot, but in the moment, these are actually really hard to do in the moment. They're things that, you know, we talk about, but when God calls it in the moment, especially when you're struggling, these are really hard. Uh, First one, speak well of others. Most people tend to criticize other people, especially authority. Professors get ripped up, man. They get verbally eaten alive all the time by people. Parents, man, people, we bash our parents. We just, I mean, we just like, it's like scorched earth sometimes. Like, dude, my dad is such an idiot. Or, man, my parents are so lame, they didn't give me money for FDC, you know? It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, don't badmouth them. Speak well of others, Ephesians 4.29. Do not let any unwholesome talk, do not let any unwholesome talk, any. What's included in any? Yeah, yeah, so none of it's allowed. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So other people are listening. So what this is saying is, you know, your critical words aren't just about you. Your, Your critical words, you know, speaking well of others, it's actually impacting other people as well. You know, and again, God calls you out of the stands onto the field of play to make an impact, but if you're just criticizing and complaining... It's going to impact the people around you, your roommates. How do you talk about your roommates? It's not saying that you can't have honest conversations. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying that you can't go to a trusted leader who's neutral and have them give you wisdom because you're really struggling. That's not what it's saying. But the idea is, is you're not just going around bad-mouthing people. You're speaking well of people. And honestly, if you don't have anything to say, you know, don't say anything. Nobody's going to notice, you know? Another one, another play call that's really, really hard. Ask for forgiveness. You know, people almost never admit that they've done something wrong. Ask for forgiveness. What I've noticed, I've worked with a handful of people over the years who when I talk about forgiveness, they instantly think of all the wrongs that people have done to them. And they're like, yeah, 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 forgiveness, it's good. Well, I've forgiven this person, and I've forgiven that person, and I've forgiven this person over here for what they did to me. Well, who have you asked forgiveness of? Like, you know, a lot of people, it's like, you talk about forgiveness, and they're like, yeah, yeah, forgiveness is important, and I can think of all the people that wronged me. Well, what about the people that you wronged that you need to go ask forgiveness of? Matthew 5, 23 through 24, Jesus is speaking, Sermon on the Mount. Really fascinating what he says. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, so in Jesus' time, they still had the temple, they still had sacrifices on the altar, so this is an act of worship. So he's saying, if, if you're at the temple getting ready to give your offering, an act of worship, a holy moment. And he says this, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go, be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. That is so fascinating. You know, if you polled people and said, hey, what do you think God wants? Worship or clearing up relationships? I mean, most people, maybe not on a test. I mean, maybe on a test we would say, oh, well, yeah, clearing up relationships. But in practice, most people are going to choose worship over clearing up a relationship. I mean, it's really hard. It's messy. It's awkward. You know, it's like, 
Even, and, and he wants us to do it even when we're only 5% in the wrong. You know, that's how we usually justify it. It's like, you know, Jeremy and I getting into some conflict, which I don't think we've ever had to get into, have we? We've never had to ask for forgiveness of each other, so it's great, you know, it's great. But let's just imagine that we did, you know, and let's imagine that in my mind, it's 95% Jeremy's fault. Well, usually how I justify that is, well, I'm not going to do anything because it's 95% his fault. It's 51% his fault. 50.75% his fault. I don't have to ask for forgiveness. Well, I'm completely ignoring the fact that I'm 5% in the wrong, or I'm 49% in the wrong, or I'm 49.25% in the wrong. I'm in the wrong. Well, what play call does God call if I'm in the wrong? Go worship? No. If I'm in the wrong, what do I do? I go ask for forgiveness. And I don't do it passive-aggressively and say, you know, Jeremy, I'm only 5% in the wrong here. But I'm going to be the bigger man. <laughs> and because I'm the bigger man, I'm going to ask for forgiveness for my 5%. So will you forgive me for the 5% that I did? Like, no. That's not what he's talking about. Don't bring up theirs. Just go and say, hey, you know what? I did this. I said this. If you do get married and have kids, you will have so many opportunities to do this with your children. I cannot tell you how many times my kids do something, I, re- I get angry, I respond in anger, I respond in sin, and then the Holy Spirit convicts me and says, Elliot, you have to go and ask a four-year-old or a two-year-old for forgiveness. And the whole time I'm sitting there going, but there was 75% in the wrong, God. (laughs) But I still have to do it. And with a two-year-old, I can't be like, Ivy, I love you. And I wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have yelled, if you wouldn't have done this. I can't say that. I just have to say, hey, Ivy. When daddy raised his voice at you, I did that out of anger, and that was sin. Will you forgive me for responding in anger to you? And I just have to leave it there. It's a play call that God will continue to call for the rest of your life to go and ask for forgiveness. It is an incredibly hard play to run. But when he calls it, you have to do it. Next one, work harder than you have to. Oh, whoa. Oh, man, that's good. Now I'm curious. I'm like, what's the story? Like, that's good. All right, work harder than you have to. Colossians 3, 23. Whatever you do, what's included in that? Oh, everything. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Work at it with all your heart as working for who? You're a chemistry professor? The administration at your college? your RA, you know, your manager at the restaurant you work at? Is that who you're working for? Who are you working for? Yeah, it's working for the Lord, not for men. Then it goes on and it says, for from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. He's saying that, hey, you know, if God is going to reward you, that is like the ultimate hookup. So usually it's like, oh, well, I'm just going to, you know, this is the bare minimum I know that I've got to do, and if I just do this, I get by and nobody... You know, nobody makes a big deal about it. They're saying, hey, God, God sees it. God makes a big deal about it. Be a hard worker. Work harder than you have to. Put in the work. Another thing, stop complaining and arguing. Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Man, these absolutes. Everything. Do everything without complaining or arguing. I... 
have this, I've had to change in a, in a specific area. And the way that I've had to change is I am a, um, I'm one of those people where somebody says, I'm a contrarian. Somebody says something, and I just have to counter it. You know? So somebody's like, man, USC is the best football program in history. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to give you five facts why that's not true. You know, I just like, inside, I'm just like, I just have to shoot you down. You know? So actually, for a lot of my life, I've started a lot of pointless arguments. That's not the play God wants me to run. I mean, yeah, it's okay to have a quick mind, and it's okay to know facts, and it's okay to know what's true, but, you know, to use it for the sake of argument, that's not worth it. He doesn't want you to run that play. Stop complaining and arguing. So he says, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. Crooked and depraved generation sounds a lot like what the exiles would have been in in Babylon. He's calling them to run a play, calling us to run a play with the backdrop of just the dark blackness of human brokenness. He's saying, hey, if you'll do this, you'll stand out, you'll make an impact in which you shine like stars in the universe. So again, if you, if you want to get on the field of play and make an impact, you have to take God's instruction seriously. And it's important to realize that there's a lot of times God will call a play and you'll think there is no way that's the play. That doesn't make any sense. Why would God call this play? And you just got to resolve in your heart. If God calls the play, I'm going to run the play. And if I'm struggling with it, I can be honest about him. I can talk to him, talk to him about it. I can pray to him. I can go and get input from other people. But I'm going to have to run the play. If you want to get on the field of play and make an impact, when God calls the play, you got to run the play. I've got a neighbor, uh, an old neighbor. We lived next to them for about three years. And um, we moved in. It was, it was a young couple like us. They had, um, they had kids around our kids' age. They lived right next to us. So when we moved into this, um, it was like a fourplex that we were living in. We decided, hey, we, you know, we want to make an impact on this couple. So we got to know them. We got to know their stories. Found out that neither of them were Christians. He was raised in kind of a loose Catholic setting, but he would tell you he wasn't a Christian. Um, she was raised. She had a little bit of familiarity with church, but she had some pain in her past, and so she actually was upset with God. She was angry at God for some different things that had happened in her um, past. And so my wife and I, we decided, you know, it's really what we talked about this morning. We're going to establish ourselves on this street. We're going to establish ourselves in this neighborhood, and we're going to do the things to fit in. We've got the playground. We've got the front porch. We've got the dining table. We're going to use these things to try to make an impact. So we're trying to make an impact. And it was one of those relationships where there would be a season where we would think, okay, we're really getting some traction here. And then there would be a season where it's like, this is just a dead end. Nothing's happening. They're not responsive. They don't even really want to hang out with us. They're not, you know, interacting with us. So, you know, it's just a dead end. So it was one of those situations, and we would invite them to church, and they were like, no, we don't really want to go to church, and we would, we shared the gospel with them several times, I mean, just explicitly, very clearly, here's what the Bible teaches, here's what the God, here's what God says about sin, here's who Jesus Christ is, I mean, I even, at our church, there was a Sunday where I did a message, and he came up to me one day, and he was like, hey, you know, the neighbors and I were talking about it, because we knew that you were a pastor, and one of the ladies said, um, the reason they call it faith is because there's no evidence that Jesus existed, and so it's faith because you have to make a decision with no evidence to back it up. And I was like, well, that's interesting because I just did a sermon on that. Will you listen to it? And he was like, sure. So I send it to him. And he's like, oh, man, it's so good. I shared it with all these people. And I'm like, great. He's going to get saved. And he's like, no, no, I'm not really interested. You know, I don't really believe that stuff. <laughs> so that was kind of what's going on. In the process, we, for us, teaming, we use the term teaming in evangelism. Teaming in evangelism is really big for us. So we try to use kids' birthday parties, other things, to connect people that are not Christians with people that are Christians. 
So we'd have a party at our house, and you know, about half the room is non-Christians, half the room's Christians, just trying to get them to connect. So we lived there for about three years. And really, from our perspective, not much happened. We were very, you know, we were loving, we shared a lot of stuff. We move. About a month after we move, I get a text from him, and he says, hey, we're going to be at church tomorrow. How does kids check-in work? Because they were going to be checking their kids into the kids' ministry. And I was like, what? Like, you're going to be at church tomorrow? Like, I invited you for three years. You never responded. <laughs> Turns out, a couple that we introduced them to, you know, even though we moved, this other couple had moved into the neighborhood, and this couple stayed after it, and this couple was like, hey, you should come to church on Sunday. And they were like, you know what? Yeah, we will go to church on Sunday. What a great idea. I was like, great. You know, they're coming to church on Sunday. Then, shortly after they start coming to church, they've been faithfully coming to our church now for almost a year and a half, I think. So this is all fairly recent. So um, another uh, lady who my wife had introduced the the wife to, so the the neighbors, the wife, my wife had introduced her to another woman. They got together, and this woman was like, hey, have you heard the gospel? Can I just share the gospel with you? She shares it with her, and the wife is like, that is exactly what I need. I want to become a Christian. She prays the prayer right there on the spot. Again, just like, this is why you team in evangelism. I mean, we just, we worked the ground for three years. No fruit from our perspective. Nothing happens. We move away. Somebody else is like, you want to go to church? Yeah, yeah, we'll go to church. Hey, have you heard about Jesus? You want to follow Jesus? Yeah, that's great. I'll follow Jesus right now. And it was like, that's why you team. That's why you team. So they have us over for dinner. And um, we go over there, and there's a few other people there. And as, you know, after we're hanging out and the kids are playing, she starts talking about why they started coming to church and like why faith started to make sense to her. And it was really fascinating. She was talking about our family, but then what she said was she said, I had never seen a dad be so intentional with his kids. She's like, my whole paradigm growing up, and she's you know, got a lot of friends who have, are raising kids. She's like, all my friends, the dad only gets involved when it comes to sports. If it's sports... Dad's involved. Everything else, dad's hands off. That's mom's arena. Mom gets them dressed. Mom takes them to school. Mom does the homework. Mom, mom makes sure the meals are ready. Mom does everything. And dad is just kind of passive on Reddit or Instagram or whatever, you know, doing his thing and going to work. But he's, he's really hands off. And I had never seen a dad who actually engaged in his kids' lives, like intentionally. And then she referred to us as a couple. And she, she, she talked about how, as a couple, it wasn't like, okay, this is Allie's job, this is Elliot's job, and we're just kind of like, we're business partners kind of trying to accomplish something. But we're, we were actually like working together at, at trying to run our family, trying to make our marriage work. We were, we were a team. And so she said that for three years, she's watching this, and she's like, I've never seen anything like that. She didn't tell us that. We didn't know. I mean, we weren't sitting there thinking like, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to be intentional with our kids, something God tells us to do. We're going to invest in our marriage. We're going to team in marriage. We're going to be a partnership in this thing, something God tells us to do. We weren't sitting there saying, we're going to do it because she's watching. And when she sees it, she's going to become a Christian. No, we were just doing it because God said to do it. And we shared the gospel along the way. But what was it about our story that got her to the point to accept the gospel? We just took God's instruction seriously. I mean, we didn't do it perfectly. She probably saw me apologize to my kids. She probably was like, oh, he's like every other dad. He just yelled at his kids, you know? And then, and then she sees me apologize. She's like, well, that was different, you know? Like, I don't know. I don't know what exactly it was that she saw. But what we did is we were like, hey, you know what? We're here. We want to make an impact. And we know that we've got to take God seriously. There's a verse I recently read on this. 
Really, really helpful verse. Book of, book of Proverbs. Proverbs 12, verse 26 says this. The righteous is a guide to his neighbor. Is this on the screen? Yeah, the righteous is a guide to his neighbor. But the way of the wicked leads them astray. The righteous. Who's a righteous person? It's a person that's been forgiven by Christ, but then it's also a person who's living the right way. They're taking the instructions, and they're putting them into practice. And what they're doing is they're showing everybody around them, hey, this is the way that life's supposed to be lived. This is what real life is. And it's just like that neighbor. You know, she didn't come over and say, hey, I've got some clarifying questions. Hey, would you explain this to me? Hey, could we do a Bible study on parenting and family life so I can understand this? She's just watching. She's watching. We're using the front porch. We're using the dining table. We're using the playground. We're letting them into our life so they can see us. And then we're just, we're taking God's instruction seriously. He would call a play. I don't really want to run this play, but I'm going to run the play. And God used that to help somebody come to know him. That's the opportunity. God calls us out of the stands onto the field to play. One of the ways that he calls the exiles to do this is he says, hey, the play I have is to get married. The big idea is if God calls a play, you've got to run the play. So you've got to resolve in your heart. God calls a play, I'm going to take his instruction seriously, and I'm going to run the play. And specifically when it comes to marriage, again, pray about it and talk to your leaders about it. All right, let me pray. Father God, I thank you that you include us in your mission. I mean, I think so many times we overlook the privilege it is, the great privilege it is, to be a part of your mission to bring life change to the places where we live. What a great privilege, God. And what a great blessing to us. There are so many blessings when we take your instruction seriously. It's not just about other people. There are so many ways this blesses us. So God, I pray that we would be people who we've made the commitment and we're ready to say, God calls the play, I'm going to run the play. In Jesus' name, amen.